We're not pushing back on the reality of the existence of historical evil. No one's closing their eyes to that. But what we're actually hoping for is that despite the evil of history and the mistakes of the past, that there actually has been hope, has been healing, growth, and there is a positive view of the future. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and today we're going to present another Stand Firm special event. Our normal cast of characters is here, Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Today, they're joined by their wives, Ann Kennedy and Liza Koch, both of whom have been on Stand Firm before. The occasion is a new opinion piece in the New York Times by the Reverend Tish Harrison Warren, an ACNA minister at Resurrection Anglican Church in Austin, Texas. Matt, Anne, JD, and Liza react to the piece, share their own memories of learning about America's racial history, talk about the complications of writing for a secular audience, and more. We decided to follow the well-known podcast dictum, Five's a Crowd, so I sat this one out. I'm sure you're all crushed, but it's a great conversation nonetheless. Here you go. Okay, so here we are, uh, and we are joined today by our lovely wives. Uh, Liza Koch is here, and I'll let you speak. Would you like to? Uh... That's my name. You got I'm it just right. Kidding. No, just kidding. <laughs> that was nice. Uh, we you. should start. That we should really, start. We really should start gracious. that over. Um, okay, <laughs> take two. You... <laughs> That's awkward. That's right. That's awkward. Um, and Anne, Anne, this is a long-term, long-time listener, long-time favorite, Anne, to the podcast. Welcome. So we are, we are looking at an article written by the Reverend Tish Warren, who is a priest in the Diocese of 64 or so, writes a weekly column for the New York Times, uh, entitled this week, White Christians Should Not Shy Away from the Truth About Our Past. And we read this, and we thought that we should reflect a little bit on it. Uh, it's been put out there into the interwebs, into the world, and um, and uh yeah, so there we go. That's our beginning, Matt. That's the intro. It's very eloquent. But we thought we'd, we'd pass the mic to you, best color man in the business. <laughs> so one of the reasons I wanted to look at this article is because it does illustrate some of the some of the problems that we have been discussing over the course of the last year and a half um, with regard to how people on the progressive slash quote unquote woke uh, end of the spectrum do have this tendency to so characterize those they disagree with. And so I guess I would say stereotype those they disagree with. They end up uh, walking into, um, into a place of misrepresentation. And, I, and, and, and also that's one, that's one aspect of it. But another one is that the way that history is dealt with especially with regard to critical race theory, critical theory, is, is misleading, to, to use a nice word for it. So, so in this article, critical race theory is, is presented as, uh, as history, and those who disagree with critical race theory are, are presented as, as objecting to history. Um, and just a cursory reading, and not just critical race theory, but critical theory in general, will show you know you're this the theory the paradigm is as 
specific analysis of history from an ideological perspective. And so if you if if Christians reject that perspective, which they should, they're they're going to say, I don't want any kind of critical theory involved in my children's education or in my uh, the way that the, our church understands what happened in the past. And when they say that, they're not repudiating an actual study of, of, of history and the evils that various people have done in the, in the past, but they are saying, we're not going to buy into a, a way, an analysis of history that has to do so close, or is, is associated with, um, well, frankly, Marxist way of looking at history um, and power and, and, um, and economics. So anyway, that, so that's just generally why I want to look at this. Um, I mean, I don't know if we want to go through this paragraph by paragraph, but I, I can, I, I, I grew up in Texas um, as, wow. I grew up in Texas about 20 years, probably earlier than Ten. to share, 10? 10. Oh, I'm, I'm younger than I thought. Okay, so 10 years <laughs> uh, earlier than, uh, than the Reverend uh, Warren did. And, and so her experience, experience of growing up and learning about race in Texas schools is very vastly different than mine. I grew up in a South Texas public school in, in a rural area. I was, I, was, I was raised in Corpus Christi, but they, I was sent to a rural in the independent school district that was predominantly white. Uh, we had some Hispanics, but it was predominantly white. And uh, Tish, excuse me, the Reverend Harrison Warren writes, uh, I don't remember the first time I was taught the Civil War was not fought because of slavery. And I can remember the first time I was taught that. I was, uh, I, I mean, I can remember the first time I was taught that the Civil War was, was fought because of slavery and its intersection with states' rights. And that was about the sixth grade. I was taught very early on that, that while states' rights had something to do with it, it was, it was the, 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 the presenting issue yeah. was yes. that the South wanted to preserve its, its slave owning that I, I just I don't remember a time when that was hidden from me or that wasn't brought to the fore or presented as a as a, as a historical evil um she said I'm a white Texan she says so this idea was simply in the, in the ether um and I think she means there the idea that it was it was about states rights rather than slavery um as were myths about good slave owners and the lost cause and, and again here here <laughs> I remember very distinctly in sixth grade being taught that there were some really cruel slave owners and there were some, some who were less cruel, but never taught that it was a good thing that the, the slave owners were, were actually really doing a good thing for the slaves. I was never taught that ever in my, in my entire upbringing. Um, I've never even heard someone say that in like, like, private, public. I've never even actually heard a human being say that. Um, what, argue that it was, slavery was like a better system? Yeah, I've never even heard someone, I mean, I know that, I guess there, there's, there are all these people out there saying that, but I've never personally, and I grew up in Baton Rouge. I mean, you know, if there was going to be yeah, I'm from people North Carolina, somewhere like, that were going to argue that, um, that anyway, I, uh, it just. I grew yeah, up in a like conservative Baptist boarding school in Africa where people had gone to Africa, you know, to spread the gospel. And we learned about slavery and that it was an unmitigated evil all the time. Right, like, right. I, I, <laughs> if you were looking for like uh, colonialism, white savior stuff, you know, you'd think maybe you'd see it where people went to 
save people from their sins or something, but not even there. I mean, I've never, this, this is really a remarkable thing to start out with. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's, I mean, say she's banking on her experience being um, something that no one can really, you can't really. Yes. So like, what sort of incredibly racist little enclave did you grow up in? You know, that's <laughs> yeah, right. what I want to say. Like, where, what sort of revisionist backwards white supremacist uh, sort of neighborhood did you, neighborhood school did you go to? Because uh, we certainly never taught or taught anything mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> like, you, may, you may really have a problem. You may really have. Uh... Well, she admits that she was taught that America had a racist history, but then when she says, but when I was a child, the details of what that meant were blurry and vague. And I, I'm curious to know what, at what age would you like to be teaching the gruesome details of what slavery was like? Like how young were you? Like, I mean, <laughs> even that I thought was like, that's a little blurry and vague. Like how, how young were you and how old do we need to be before we get into the details? Cause as we know, they're teaching these details very young now and a lot of them are gruesome. And so I, I'm not even sure it's not, it's not unquestionable that little children need to be taught the gruesome details of our racist past, but she was aware that we had a racist history. So that's, she, I, it, she seems a little conflicted even about what was being taught to her at the time. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it, but even so, I again, I, I, this is probably in the eighties, mid eighties. I was, I remember yeah. being taught that uh, about the slave, uh, the slave, um, the, the, mid, the Atlantic slave trade, and and yes, how the ships and how they yeah, all the died ships on the ships, and, and yeah, went over the overboard and packed into the into, into the mm-hmm. hold. I, I was, I remember all of this very vividly. Um, and then the evils of the plantation, you know, like, yeah, there was a, we learned about different kinds of, you know, slaves that were in the house and slaves mm-hmm. that were in the field and how wicked that was to differentiate between, you know, kinds of what people looked like. And I mean, I, I that none of that was hidden from, <laughs> from <laughs> me as a kid. Yeah, I don't and know. Without- Without exception, the the narrative was, can you believe that people used to think that just because the color of your skin, you were somehow, you know, superior or inferior? Like, can you believe that? And, you know, to the extent that people did, they were they were uh, backwards and wrong. And that's just frankly, that was the that's what was in the ether. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, whether or not there were some people that were still backwards and wrong. I mean, that's that's what's going to happen in terms of human sinfulness. But certainly um, as a culture and a society, I mean, I've talked to the. Uh, Ted Duvall here, the rector at Christchurch, who grew up in South Carolina, you know, which has its certainly its position in the history of uh, slavery in and the he's, South. He's even older than Matt, so yeah, and he's and he said, I can't rem- I can't remember a day having grown up in the South where I wasn't um, taught something of the horrors of our of our past, and have worked in in sort of explicitly and implicitly his entire Christian life um, to rectify those to address them, to acknowledge them, and to, and to work for a better, you know, as, as Martin Luther King said, colorblind society. I mean, that was the idea. And so all of a sudden, you know, that becomes, um, uh, well, that's, that's not, no longer the goal, as we've talked about uh, many shows now. The closest thing I can think of that might come to, to, to what she's maybe speaking of here is, is I, remember, I do remember people, and not in a classroom setting, but I do remember people saying, well, you know, I wish... The Civil War, I wish Civil War had been fought not over slavery, but over the actual constitutional issue. I, people have, have said that to me all through, you know, if, if we hadn't had slavery, there was a legitimate question about the relationship between the central 
government and the authority of states. It's just lamentable that the issue came up, that the, the reason the war was fought is because of this horrific this horrific institution. And so some of the social ills we're experiencing now with such a, with a more centralized system than was in place maybe before the Civil War uh, could have been avoided. Um, but, but even in those conversations, Slavery is the thing that ruined it. I mean, if 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 it hadn't, but been rightly, put, I mean, yeah, like it was yeah. worse. Yeah, I never heard anybody say, "Well, we shouldn't have done it." You know, yeah, like yeah, it's a well. It was quite a, a cost. I mean, I think that's what. Issue. Well, and that's what people. I think it's hard. It's hard to appreciate. I think. Um, you know the the actual tragedy that the war was. I mean, it was it was a it was a tragedy that was an equal and opposite reaction to the horror of slavery. I mean, that's a little bit what Lincoln was getting at in his second inaugural. That that I, I don't have it in front of me, but he says something to the extent that perhaps every drop of blood that was that was drawn out of the soldiers, both north and south, was equivalent to the drops of blood that were taken out of the out of the slaves during that evil institution. And so it was a it it was a almost just um, you know nation destroying event and, and and rightly so in certain ways. I mean, it was the judgment of God wrecked on the um, on the country. And you know the the difficult thing and all and this is in in every war is that when the the to to navigate the wreckage of the as it were the losers even the righteously defeated you know which you could argue that it was it was a righteous defeat. Um, nevertheless, those were still people's you know, great grandfathers and, um, you know, and livelihoods. And, and it was a, it was a way of life that rightly so, you know, needs to be said needed to be dismantled because it was, it was facilitated by an inhumane and evil enterprise. Um, but it was, a it was, it, it was, and it, and it, at least as I was brought up, that was the, the difficulty was how do you navigate this? Um, you know, the reality of what a tragedy it was, um, the reality of the just, the, the, the justness of the defeat, and yet the persistence of the scars, you know, sort of memories and physical and whatnot. And it's, it's, a, it's so much more complicated at this point and so much more nuanced. And I don't like that word in general, but when you're talking about history and who writes it and how it's, how it's passed down, um, to say that it was, it was either, you know, um, un, unvarnished, white supremacy, you know, rewriting of history and somehow turning it into a, um, into a, um, a righteous cause, um, or it was, um, you know, uh, th th there was no, there was no complexity to the issue except for, you know, race, races versus non-racist is just, I mean, it's childish and it's, mm -hmm. it's, it makes for a good, I don't know, it makes for good, um, short article yeah a good short article uh written to appease and pander to your audience but it's not actually what christians yeah. are called to do which is to um shine the light of day on the the line of evil as solzhenitsyn said that runs through every human heart um and realizes that uh the world is is much more complex than we would ever like it or imagine it to be and yet um that's what we're called to root out and to acknowledge not simply uh, one side was righteous over the um, over the other, or, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, just just reading this article, my my guess is that she she's read this book, which she uh, which she uh, is essentially reviewing in this article. It's uh, by Clint Smith. It's how the word word is passed, um, and I think it it seems to have shaped the way she sees her own 
experiences, maybe, I don't know, but they certainly shape the way she she sees the common white person experience growing up in in the United States, and especially you know, in, in the South, Southern United States. So in the second paragraph, she writes, this experience is common. Like she's talking about her experience of, of not hearing about the horrors of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, there is objective truth to our nation's history based in research and primary sources, but as Clint Smith describes in his book, How the World's Words Pass, in America, we too often tell a slanted version of our history to protect the feelings of white people. Uh, Smith highlights how an internet, inter- how an intern intentional disinformation campaign, which began shortly after the end of the Civil War, has altered the way American narr- much of America narrates our racial past. He looks at the convenient lies that white people often rely on to belittle the horrors of the past and the way we exclude stories that might trouble and challenge us. I just, I, I, that is not my, my experience. I don't know too many people who would say that. I, I, I did, did you guys have like a, 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 a fake narrative that you grew up with that suddenly you had an awakening and said, oh my goodness, wait a minute. Slavery was was evil. <laughs> Slave masters were sometimes cruel to their slaves. I, I didn't know that. Did you have that experience in your, in your upbringing? You sound really like... You promised me that you would I, I, try to have a good tone today. That just sounds like, a, I'm not sure where that's coming from, other than this book, because I don't know anybody else who's had that kind of experience. I mean, it's a flabbergasting kind of, I mean, I haven't read the book, so I have not been awakened to my racist past yet. Um, so, I mean, so, what kind of it, stories do we tell ourselves to uh, to escape from that? Like, I guess, what what what's the narrative? What, yeah, like how do how do white people have to sort of fluff themselves to get over the? Well, the, I think yeah. this paragraph points to the assumptions that she has already um, imbibed about that. Just the critical race theory that's already just underlying everything she's saying, because we might disagree about what racist what constitutes something racist if she's coming from the crt perspective then she would see an unbroken chain of events or an unbroken line between the reality of the horrors in the past and the disparities of the present so she would be and this guy too probably i'm guessing would be pointing to um you know any statistic you want to look at with how if there's a disparity between white people and their feelings and people of color in, in anything, you know, whether it's making money or wealth or buying houses or, you know, all the things they quote, um, then that's proof of the continuation of the racism. And so that's proof that we haven't dealt with it. That's proof that it hasn't been repented of. That's proof, whatever. So that's what I'm guessing. I mean, the irony again, that she's being blurry and vague. She's, she's making assertions, which she does throughout the whole thing without actually backing any of the assertions up. She's just assuming that this is true. She just agrees with him without saying, she doesn't give it a single example of a convenient lie that we tell ourselves to feel better and protect our feelings. But she says that that's, that was true for her and she knows it's true for lots of other people and that's good enough. Yeah, yeah they haven't yeah. done a very good job. If, if they've tried to protect the feelings of white people, they haven't done a very good job. I mean, I mean, again, I don't have particularly thin skin, but I have um, read, watched, um, you know, heard whatever in whatever possible medium there is about the evils of slavery, the evils of white supremacy. The, and, and again, I largely agree with most of them. I don't see any reason to 
to deny, you know, that it existed, that we're grateful it's over and that, um, and that we're hopefully moving past that. I mean, I don't, but I certainly, I think it's, uh, um, yeah, it's, I don't know what, like you said, Matt, I don't know where these stories are. I, I don't, if there's some sort of like underground movie or book network um, uh, that, that we're totally unaware of um, that is, that is painting an entirely um, counter narrative to, to um, what seems to be the actual case that the civil war was fought in, in large part because of slavery. And as a result of that, um, the country reset itself and the wounds are still there. The scars are needing to be healed, but the bone has been set and we are working towards, um, towards hopefully a better, more, more, you know, equal society. I mean, that seems to be the, I don't know what other narrative there is, certainly not one that's, that's prevalent. Now, of course, then we get into the deeper issues of the current discussion, because as Laza was pointing out, um, there are people who don't want that to be uh, good news. They want that to, they want to essentially argue that it's almost the same, you know, 1850 and, and 2021 are the same levels of racism, the same levels of, in, of, um, injustice. of injustice, and that basically nothing has happened good um, and that's that's what we're pushing back on because we're not pushing back on the reality of the existence of historical evil. No one's closing their eyes to that. But what we're actually hoping for is that despite the evil of history and the mistakes of the past, that there actually has been hope, has been healing, growth, and there is a positive uh, future of few view of the future, not um, a hopeless, nihilistic one. And I think that's that's what the heart for me when I argue against. What, what passes as critical race theory is that, you know, under the guise of quote unquote white supremacy, like every, every vestige of um, sort of a sort of Judeo-Christian formed Western civilization idea of, of all sorts of things is lumped under the idea of uh, Eurocentric, you know, patriarchal white supremacy and mm -hmm. is to be jettisoned, removed and mocked. Well, we're going to push back on that, and 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 what we're grateful to see is that we're put people are pushing back on that, whether or not they're quote unquote white or not, you know. Um, uh, and I think that's what's what's so heartening about it is mm -hmm. that you know you may have the luxury of rejecting all of the um, cultural norms that that created you know one of the freest, most prosperous, and and um, sort of. Uh, yeah, one of the most amazing civilizations the world has seen, but many people, whatever their skin color is, uh, are clamoring to enjoy and participate in that. Um, and you, you can call it what you want, but we'll continue to, to fight for some of those foundations because um, they certainly aren't white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem with CRT, um, you know, at its heart. Maybe the issue is I mean, when we hear these stories of, of, the past and the cruelties of slavery, at least I speak for myself, I don't feel guilty. And, and maybe that's what she thinks is, is the problem is I, I don't feel guilty because I share the same color, same, same skin color as the people who did those things because I didn't do them. Uh, in fact, I feel, I remember feeling very indignant about it, righteously indignant, I guess, about the past. Why, how, how could this nation have allowed those things to happen? But I didn't feel a kind of corporate guilt for that because I wasn't there and I never supported that. And I never would have, um, well, I, might have. I might have, but I didn't <laughs> well, you totally. Have. I mean, any of us could, could have, right. You right. know, we We're all, all do like, we, we have lots of things now that we should feel revulsion about. We should feel like yeah. fragile, but we don't, we think they're great.
Right. But, <laughs> but I don't feel guilty for that right. in the past. And I don't think I should. Right. No, I agree with that. I'm not <laughs> saying that you should. No, I'm just, but the whole point is like good history means that you can look at what somebody in the past did and think, oh my gosh, that's so terrible. Um, what would I have done in a similar kind of situation? Mm-hmm. And this kind of reading of history mitigate it, it makes that kind of history impossible. You know, the whole point of this kind of history is that you don't ever find within yourself really a, a present evil or a sympathy for anyone. You just have to get onto the right team and then uh, then you'll know that you're good or bad. Yeah, it's true because all the sins that we're talking about are either in the past or they're just systemic right now. So that you, all you really have to repent of as a white person now is just benefiting from a system that's set up to, you know, to benefit you. And that's not the same, that's just not the same thing as a heart sin. So you can, so that the whole CRT narrative at this point is that the, you know, maybe sure intention's not an issue. Like maybe you didn't mean to be racist or whatever, but you are because you're benefiting from the system. And so then, and from a Christian perspective, like how are you supposed to repent from that? How can you be absolved from that? Where does that leave you? We had in the Episcopal church, when we were in seminary, we had that, they had this experimental liturgy they were, they were working with called enriching our worship. Um, And the, the confession prayer in that thing, there was no, like I personally confess to Jesus or God or whatever, because I, because I personally have sinned. It was please forgive us for the sins done on our behalf. Mm-hmm. That's really nice. Isn't it? Yeah. For, forgive is. us for other people's sins that they committed because they're bad people and we're righteous. You know, we're trying to make, we're trying to fix it. But, you know, meanwhile, we're please forgive us for, for all the sins that other people do on our behalf. Mm-hmm. It was really it was a pretty interesting I, I way think of, that's when I stopped going to chapel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think in the di- all the diocesan conventions that I ever participated in in the Episcopal Church were just a litany of our past sins and uh, resolutions to um, not do them anymore. Sins. That's right. We condemn those that did them, and we will not uh, support them, uphold them. And it was just, um, well, that was, uh, we just did that every year. And and there you have it. But, you know, and that, but that brings us to an interesting uh sort of aspect of this entire um, article, which is one of the reasons I found it so um, we wanted to talk about it, is it is written, um, as, you know, uh, she has this platform in the New York Times as the sort of religion uh, opinion writer, not the only one, but, um, you know, sort of uh, specifically so. And so even the title, How My Christian Faith Informs My Understanding, or, or why Christians should not shy away from the truth about our past. And so she's ostensibly explaining to the, you know, one would imagine at least moderately secular. I mean, I'm not saying everyone that reads New York Times is a, is a secular person, but, but there are people reading New York Times. She's explaining to them how, as a Christian, she's processing these things. And so one of the things we get down to is that she's talking about telling the truth about our history um, as a, it means that a Christian, I have to wade into the emotional complexity that honesty requires does not mean that white people must hate everything about our ancestors or curse those who made our lives possible. It means that we cannot deny, minimize, or excuse their behavior. Like who, who, again, who is doing this? So, and a Christian or not, I mean, that's what I want to know. Like what sort of Christian, like that's not a uniquely Christian idea to be pointed out at history and then to be brought into contact with the, the failings and the, um, 
the, the, the victories and the fail, failures of your forefathers and hopefully, hopefully work towards addressing them and correcting them. I mean, this was, um, you know, but again, it's, it's the, the replete throughout this, this article is this idea that there's a specifically, there's, a, there's, a, there's an aspect that the Christians are missing that she's calling us back to mm -hmm. because as a specifically Christian insight into this, it should force us to embrace um, critical race theory and this sort of oversight of our sanitized past. And I, again, not only have we mentioned already that we don't see that happening, I don't see this taking place in any way in this column or in other sort of places where Christians have been given a prominent voice to speak to a secular society with few exceptions where they are calling um, that society to repent of um, enumerated Christian sins that are not um, socially acceptable. What I mean by that is, you know, the questions of abortion, of, of fornication, of idolatry. I mean, just go down the list of the Ten Commandments, if you just want to start there, and you say, you know, where is the outrage, the indignation, the ether that you're swimming in, in the, in the editorial room of the New York Times is just as full of um, non-Christian ideas about all sorts of things as perhaps this um, racist middle school um, she went to in Texas is about race. Um, so again, not to minimize and say what aboutism, but at the same time, it's, I find it, it's, it's, it's unsurprising to me that the sins enumerated in the pages of the New York Times by some people are very um, easily digestible Yes, for their readership. Like it's, right. it's a super convenient topic for her to choose. And actually, my first reaction when I saw the title was like, are you kidding? You're like six months to a year too late on this. Like, so if she's representing the ACNA, we're just like way behind everyone else. But we're going to say the same thing as everyone else, just way much later, which drives me nuts. But That's right. Like, and we've just heard about this thing called CrossFit. And it's, it's all the rage uh, with kids right. these days. It's like the Atkins diet. Here we come. That's right. Uh, so, so you, there's the, another thing that just really has always driven me insane, I guess, is, is the flattening out of history into a, a kind of cartoonish good guys, bad guys. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, you kind of see, get a glimpse of this where, where she, um, she quotes interview with, with the author she's referring to how he uh, she says in an interview smith discussed how a statement of facts such as quote the confederacy was a treasonous army predicated on maintaining and expanding the institution of slavery unquote is recast as a biased ideological statement <laughs> quote part of what racism tries to do is turn empirical evidence unquote smith said into statements that are quote ostensibly reflective of someone's opinion and reflective of a political sensibility or disposition rather than one that is honest about this history, this country's history. Now, I, 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 again, I'm, I'm very glad the North won. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that slavery was done away with, but that sentence, the Confederacy was a treasonous army predicated on maintaining and, expand, and, and expanding the institution of slavery is hugely problematic, historically speaking. Right. Yes. Uh, were there people in that day and age who were taking up arms to protect and expand the institution of slavery? Of course there were. Were there people drafted into the Confederate Army because they had no idea what was going on, just the, the farmers who were, who were protecting their state? Yes. Um, were there people even, you know, like, like in, in the leadership of the Confederate government and uh, Army and Navy uh, who, who didn't, who hated slavery, but thought 
that they were defending their states. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, what what this does is it it takes away your your ability to look at people in the past and kind of assess them as human beings. And instead, you've got to have the black hat, white hat, the the, the, the good evil thing going on. So you, you really don't get to understand understand history. I remember I've been reading. I mean, I, I, we've been talking about it on Preventing Grace podcast, but uh, I've been on this well, for a while. I was in this, this this kick of reading Hitler biographies, right? So, so, so and I was I read like five or six of them in a row. Um, I just got was just fascinated by by the guy, uh, um, not. Like in an, in an admiring way, but mm-hmm. just just yeah. how inspirational. What's making this person tick, right? Um, and what's what's fascinating about them is the best of them were not just just a, 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 the opposite of hagiography. Did not just sitting there, not just giving us you know three hundred four pages of this is Satan, this is Satan, this is Satan. Uh, point number two, this is Satan. Point number three, this is Satan. Point number right. four, this is Satan. It's hey, how could somebody who's a human being become the person he became? What happened? And you, and you leave those pages thinking, okay, well, I sadly, I can actually see if I was in that position, in that upbringing, I'm, oh my goodness, I could possibly be thinking in some of the same ways. That's what makes good history, right? But if you flatten it all out and you just make somebody, you, you just say everybody's evil here and, you, and, you, and uh, the whole cause was evil, the whole, everybody who was involved in it is evil, you can't actually come out of a, of, a, of a study of history with a really good substantial lesson because you're not really studying history, you're studying ideology projected back onto history. But that's true right now also. I mean, that's true of history, but that's, that's the theological game that's being played right here. When she says the word Christians need to worry about this, she's taking American Christianity and in one sweep, just saying, you know, all Christians have to grapple with their racist past in the same kind of way. And they, I mean, that that's, that's a strange thing to say. I mean, so many people in this country have gone to church since the founding of the country. So many people have been Christian and have been who thought they were Christian and weren't Christian and are presently thinking they're Christian and maybe, or, I mean, Christianity in America is a very interesting subject to consider, but for the New York times, it's like a monolith. It's a monolith. It's like saying, Islamic terrorism, you know, that has one meaning. You don't need to think about mm-hmm. how many different things might be in those two words. The way, Bringing in the question of sin and grace right at the end or sinful communities is just a really interesting twist, I guess. You bring up all this stuff and then you're like, you know, don't be racist, you bad Christians. Is kind of what I, I mean, that feels like what she's saying. I don't know. You know, I, surely. Well, um, yeah. I don't she, know. I guess like to say that the American church has had a sanitized story of America, American Christianity. I don't, I mean, I'm sure there are churches that have sanitized, you know, there are churches that love nationalism and wave the flag but right across the block there is a church that 
doesn't do that, you know, and, and hates that kind of thing. You can't flatten it out. Uh, well, you can. Yeah, and there's a couple of there's a couple of, of assumptions I think that are um, well that are just wrong. One is that somehow America. Uh, it's funny someone tweeted about this that there's it's, it's a it's a it's a reversal of the or it's an interesting take on American exceptionalism that somehow we're uniquely um, that our past is uniquely racist and uniquely oppressive to. Uh, minorities and to, I mean, this, you know, that, that there is no lack of sin in every culture and every um, civilization that we can point to. And so the, the amazing thing also, um, someone else said, is the question in the West, in the, in the Western civilization, is not whether slavery existed, but how it is that we actually got to a place where we, we actually took up arms to end it. I mean, that's a, that's a, that was, um, you know, obviously you can point to the British and say they didn't, they didn't uh, have a war. But you know, we got to a point where that was the only option, or at least that, that's what happened. And yet we did it in part, in large part, to eradicate what had been become um, a, a worthy cause. And that's, um, you know, that was a high price, but it was, a, it, was a, it was a price worth paying. And so we're on the other side of this now. And so what do we do um, as a culture to recognize that we have taken this momentous step, you know, 150 years ago, that um, redirected the entire course of our nation, you know, put a, um, you know, uh, killed what, 800,000 men, you know, not to mention women and children. And, uh, and yet here we are uh, talking about it, processing it, trying to work through it and hopefully um, learning something from it, not simply wallowing in it and, and perpetuating it. And I think that's what the, the, the saddest part about all this is that, you know, in, in the short history of, I mean, short 10 year history, it seems like we've gone from, from the idea of even talking about ourselves or other people as white or black people or, or brown people, or somehow that's a constitutive or, or meaningful category in any sort of, you know, other than just like a broadly cultural way um, to, to talking about um, white supremacy and, and blackness and, and as, a, as a brown person or as a POC or as this, all these, and it's the fracturing of, um, of a world that I certainly was not brought up in, you know? I mean, it's, it, it was not a perfect world down in the deep South. There was still vestiges of all of Jim Crow and all of the, you know, when I've learned about, um, my dad would show me with shame the two water fountains down at the city park um, golf course where they had, you know, for, for white people and then everyone else. And it was, you know, and he was, he was embarrassed of his own, his own, um, you know, parents' complicity in that. And yet he was teaching me, like, can you imagine this is where we were and this is where we're going. And that's the world that we're, we're, is being threatened is not the world that's perfect, because that certainly wasn't a perfect world, but a world where as a young child, I said, you know, far be it for me to ever think, even even consider the idea of having a two water fountains mm -hmm. or or separate um, buses or whatever the way that they used to. And yet now, we're with all of the hope that we we took. I did as a child. It seems like we've taken twenty year step back, fifty year step mm -hmm. back. Uh, the way that people talk about it, and you know, I know that there's some real righteous anger, and there's some there's some areas of real need to be addressed, and there's all sorts of problems still, but. But this is not helping. This is not helping into into sort of um, to to implicate uh, Christians, white Christians, in the pages of the New York Times for the sake of their readers to to point the finger at their sort of whitewashed, pun intended, sanitized vision of American history that absolves them of all guilt, uh, fear, and shame with respect to their past, 
is just not true. It's just not a, it's not a true thing. And it's not a fair representative of, of quote unquote, white Christians in the South, at least not any that I've ever known. And I've known a lot of them. I mean, I am one. And, and it was hard to read because I'm sitting there watching someone, you know, nodding, sipping their coffee on the um, up and, you know, reading the New York Times saying, well, this is what we always thought about what it would be like to grow up in Texas. And, um, now, and we know. So now we know. And so, and so aren't you glad we don't live down there? Um, except for the taxes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the, it is interesting when you look at the, um, you know, one of the things she says in the article is that uh, people are opposing critical race theory, she puts that in kind of scare quotes, so that they can use that as the bogeyman to, to deep six historical accounts of the past. So you say, yeah. so, the real aim is to prevent stories about there being segregated buses and segregated schools and um, but and uh, water fountains and all that kind of thing. Um, I would you know, she's a few examples here. I would like to dig into those examples a little more and see and see what exactly is being taught there and what people are objecting to because I don't think anyone object would I honestly don't think anyone objects to the historical recounting of the fact that that there were uh you, you couldn't drink out of the same water fountain as a white person if you're black i think i don't think anyone's gonna have a problem with that or that black people were, were made to sit in the back of the bus which is ridiculous and stupid i don't think anyone would have a problem with with a study of that but but what is the point being made from that and what is the exhortation from that and that's where i think people have a problem with crt is they say okay well yes these are historical things that happened but then the diagnosis and then the prescription for fixing it Right. Um, always has to do with some kind of ideologically leftist solution. And this this plays into a really common thing you find on, on the left, politically and theologically, which is they'll identify a problem like you know, racism or uh, lack of diversity or whatever. Um, and then they'll propose the, the classic kind of leftist solution to it. You know, uh, let's redistribute wealth. Let's take money from the rich and give it to the poor. And if you disagree with their solution, then they'll say, well, you really don't care about the poor. But in fact, you no, know, you do care about the poor. You just think the solution is going to make more poor people. Right. So, so yeah. you'd rather have a different solution than the one they're offering, but they're able then to wedge the issue against you as if you're against the poor or against right. the minorities or whatever, whatever it might be. That's the kind of thing that I see going on in this article is that, you know, if you're, it's, it's really, if you're opposing CRT, you really are opposing uh, an honest honesty yeah you're opposing yeah, you're opposing honesty, honesty. Right. That's right. it's not that you really that you have any problem it's not really the fact that crt proposes an ideological solution to this issue that is diametrically opposed to the christian faith right yeah and if you so and you're as a christian you just you want to be insulated you know you're just trying to bubble wrap yourself against feeling discomfort the other thing that you have to do is you have to publicly like Christians would need to publicly repent, publicly display, display their lamentation over the past. I mean, it doesn't, it presumes an immense amount too about what people are actually praying about in secret. You know, right. when, yeah. when you're really confessing your sins and praying through morning prayer and praying the confession prayer, like you don't, maybe there are some racists out there who are really pr confessing their sins and being forgiven by God. And then, but they're not, they're not getting online and saying, I feel so sad about my racist past. 
And so um, it doesn't count. You know, the church, the church can't, unless the church, whatever that is, publicly comes out and says, I'm so grieved and sorry all the time for being so racist all the time, then the church will always be wrong. Like there's no amount of lamentation they can do to make it okay. Right. Um, I heard Vody Bauckham talk about this once and he had such a good point. He said about this idea of corporate guilt and how we're supposed to be repenting of it um, about the past and you know the fact that we're white and so we've benefited from this white system. He said, he would say in response to that, that we've done that. He said, I think as a country, we've done that. He said, he, if you look at the 13th, the 14th, the 15th amendments, and we've already talked about all the blood that was shed over the issue, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, all those, he said, were, I mean, what are they except for explicit written into law repentance about the way it was done before and writing the ship. And so I would agree when she quotes, you know, she says repentance for sin is not just feeling sorry about something as if we're saying that, <laughs> but not just feeling sorry about something, but actively addressing and trying to repair the wrong that's been done. Well, we can point to laws that have changed. Praise God. Like we don't have the same legal injustice situation that we used to before, but that the way they talk about it, it absolutely is the same and nothing has improved. And, right. you know, so they want to keep it vague though, Like we can point to specific things that have been done that have made progress and have righted wrongs, but they, she doesn't, she, in that same paragraph, right after that, she says, repentance requires truth telling and we cannot repent for the sins of racism in the present if we're not willing to admit the white supremacist roots of American culture, including the, including the church in the past. But what, what are the sins of racism in the present? She doesn't say. And that's a part of the whole CRT thing too. It's very vague. So we're yeah. supposed to repent of it, but we don't exactly know what it is, except that we're kind of benefiting from it. And so there's no, there's no way forward other than saying, I'm sorry that I'm benefiting. I'm sorry that I've been given something good. Should I feel bad about that? I don't know. <laughs> the, the disparity is, is this, this, and that's another kind of logical leap that you find in these things, which is that, you know, if, if there is disparity, then somewhere there's racism or somewhere there's misogyny or somewhere there's, uh, there's a, that's all the proof you need. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, there's no other, and so and no other reason is acceptable. No other possible explanation is is even uh, given or, or or allowed for. So that's the the anti-racism statement that the ACNA clergy came out with. Um, what was it like last year? I think it was. Was that was just front and center throughout that statement? Was hey, we've noticed that the ACNA is not as diverse as the United States is. Therefore, we repent of racism. Are we are we saying you can't join us because you're black? Are we doing that? Are we saying you can't join us if you're not you know if you're not southern and white and male? I mean, if we're doing that, then yes, let's <laughs> repent. But but if it's just the vagaries of the way we've grown and or some other explanation besides outright racism, let's not repent of it because we don't know that that's 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 what's happening. Um, and there was no attempt at any kind of analysis. Um, in that in that in that paper, so another thing another thing which maybe we're probably getting along toward the end of our time, but but another thing that was interesting in this in this article was her understanding of sin and and, and total depravity. Um, one of the common tropes you hear on the, on on the progressive side is progressive Christian side is believe in total depravity, then you can't deny that you're racist. Right. So right. Because, right. Uh, 
so the, the, the total depravity does not mean that in every single aspect of your life you're sinning. I mean, or, or every single aspect of your life you have you are you are totally corrupted. So you can actually sometimes do have an area of your life which is better than another area. Um, just because you're totally with total depravity means is every faculty has been touched by the fall. Um, it doesn't mean that in every, and you see, you actually sin in every way. So you can be totally depraved and not a pedophile. It, it, you're not, you know, you're not, you're not sinning in that way necessarily. And you can be totally depraved and not a racist. Um, so just the mere fact of our fallenness doesn't mean that we've sinned in every way possible, but that seems to be the implication here. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. That's that's being drawn from that doctrine, and she even quotes John Calvin in yeah. uh, New York Times, which I thought was kind of interesting. Well, and so. beyond that, you know, what we're witnessing with respect to sin and absolution is that there are secular sins um, and non-biblical um, attempts to uh, shame and guilt that uh, will grow increasingly strident and increasingly platformed until um, actual forgiven Christians get with the program and realize what they should be upset about. Because the things that we are upset about um, are not issues like, um, you know, all of the various Ten Commandments about, about honoring your father and mother and not murdering in your heart and not lusting and, you know, um, monogamy, don't fornicate. All of these, all of these are, are ridiculous things to care about. But if, until we get with the program, uh, with what actually we should feel bad about, where they're just going to keep to haranguing us, you know, and the, the, the most insulting thing, I forget who said it, but someone said the most powerful thing in the world is an actually forgiven Christian. I mean, like someone who stands before the world and before God and says, you know, I, I sure I know I'm a sinner, but I also know a greater savior. And I'm not afraid of, of, um, you know, I'm afraid of him. But in these areas, he's called me sh up short, and um, I've confessed them, and I'm washed and redeemed, and your um, appeals to my conscience no longer are binding. And so, you know, this is also an illustration of the principle of subsidiarity is because I don't know who she's speaking for, but she's not speaking for me. And in my own life, I am confronted on a daily basis with the um, sins and evils of my own heart, and, you know, whatever they may be. In my day-to-day um, -day life, I am, um, as a Christian, committed to uprooting them, to observing them, to to reflecting upon them, confessing them, and being absolved of them. And if you know, if there are people out there who are struggling with ethnic vainglory and partiality, you know, which is what the Bible would call sins, well, then I hope that they're repenting and and in a community that's that's confronting them with that. Um, but this idea that there's some sort of uh, you know, one size fits all understanding of the depravity of the human heart that can now be, uh, you know, in six paragraphs or less explained to the readership of the New York Times. It's just, it's just too, um, it's not just too easy. It's just not helpful, ultimately. And so, you know, I think that's what my overall reaction to it was, is that uh, you're not writing this to anyone who doesn't already think that's the problem with quote unquote, white Christians. And I hope that, they feel a little bit smugger and a little bit uh, more convinced that they can um, write us. They can off. write us all off uh, if they ever take a you know an, a safari down to uh, in a protected uh, car down to down to <laughs> Texas. East Texas, uh, where don't run into Matt Kennedy's family because they're just a bunch of you know uh, unreconstructed <laughs> racists. That's all you're doing. Um, <laughs> But, you know, so now they know a little bit more for the travel log of what those white racist Christians are like. And hopefully we can all see the light someday. And 
you know, I'm not really, I don't know what, if I expected much more from what would be allowed to be printed in the New York times. Can you imagine if she, if she came on and she said, you know what, like racism runs through because it's a, it's a sin pride, ethnic vainglory and pride runs through every human heart, you know, of every color. And the only way to possibly address that is to confess and throw yourself in the mercies of our crucified and risen savior. Um, because otherwise, whatever you think you are uh, standing on with respect to your righteousness before God and your in, uh, victimhood and injustice before another quote unquote race is a lie. It's just a lie. And so, I mean, if you, you know, that would have been something else, <laughs> you know, that would have. So the, probably, we probably should end here, but that, that does get to the problem of writing for the New York Times or writing for the, the Washington Post, which is. Uh, to get published, you have to couch your words a bit. You can't, yeah. um, you can't say what really needs to be said. I mean, I think there, there's a there's I mean, the other the other ACA person who writes for the New York Times didn't even mention the bodily resurrection of Jesus in an Easter article. I mean, you know, you've got you've got some you've got you're you're trying to make the the gospel a quote unquote gospel appeal to our culture despisers. And to make it make that appeal, you've got to make it gospel light or non-gospel altogether. And um, I admire, I do want to say, I admire the, 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 the attempt to bridge the gap, the attempt to, to, to write something in a secular or, uh, organ like this and um, maybe reach some people for Christ. But, but then you've got to remember that old saw is true. What you win them with is what you win them to. Right. And if you're if you're winning them to something less than than the full throated gospel, then you're not winning them to Christ. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Stand Firm podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going, please be in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to Matt and Ann Kennedy and to JD and Liza Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, the podcast will be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.